0: Well, the last couple of midweeks, Ryan, our lead pastor, has talked about prayer. And we're just going to kind of wrap that up today. First week, he talked about kind of how to pray. He walked us through the Lord's Prayer in the book of Matthew, Jesus teaching us how to pray. And then the next week, he, he kind of talked about when to pray, like when things are bad, when things are difficult about the storm at sea and Jesus walking on the water and crying and, and, and interacting with his disciples and bringing them in a, in a situation that was so dire, uh, bringing them out of that. Well, today I want to talk about why pray. Like I almost want to step back a little bit and just ask that simple question. Why should we pray? Have, have you ever wondered if God answers your prayers? Have you ever wondered if he like listens to what you say? Like if God is all powerful and if God is all loving, then wouldn't he always kind of hear what we have to say and, and do something about it? And and why should we pray if God won't do anything? Do you know what I mean? Like if God won't respond to my prayer, if God won't listen to my prayer, why? what's the even point of me praying? Why should we pray if the world is like set on a course? You know, I think this question is, probably all the more real right now, as we are in a season of prayer and fasting, like I said, with If My People, this movement of you know, tens and uh, dozens of churches uh, throughout the Bay Area praying, if we're all praying right now and, 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 and the virus continues, right? Man, are, are, is God listening? Like, is, is he actually responding to what we have to say? Why should we continue in prayer right now continue to pray for our communities, continue to pray for the eradication of this virus. If, if, if God's gonna just do what God's gonna do in the end, like what is the relationship between God and our prayers? And why should we continue to pray? I mean, you know, I've been a pastor for over a decade and uh, I gotta tell you, I have sat with so many people who have walked through this question at a deeply personal level. It's as if right now though, like internationally, we're experiencing this at a new level altogether because we're all, many Christians all over the world, not just the Bay Area, are praying specifically for the eradication of this virus and also that God would help us and comfort us and be present with us and that his will would be done in the midst of this virus. And this question is all the more pressing right now. I, I think unfortunately, many people, Christians included, they fall into like fatalism. Do you know what that is? It's like, well, if God is sovereign and everything's set up, then like, you know, why pray? So we just kind of don't pray. And we may not say that, right? We may not say exactly that we're fatalistic about something, but I think when we just give up on prayer, we kind of just sit back in that really awkward and maybe damaging theology that God's gonna do what God's gonna do. I think the Bible is so helpful because the Bible does not talk about prayer and God's sovereignty very black and white. You know, it's not like God's gonna do what God's gonna do, so don't worry about praying. And it doesn't say, well, when you pray, God does everything you say. God does everything you ask for. That's black and white. The Bible is in the gray. Somewhere in the middle of those two extremes is truth for us to find. There's a story in the Old Testament I wanna take us to. And if you've got a bible i hope you do because this is a good bible study right go to exodus the second book in your bible to the 32nd chapter exodus 32 is the second book in your bible and we're going to look at this strange story of a cow actually the people of israel i'll bring you up to speed on some of the history this is the history of the people of israel we're in we're in the second book of the bible and god's little country his little nation his people group the people of israel they have um, been freed from captivity. They were actually enslaved by the Egyptians. And after generations, God freed them from this slavery and he set for them a course towards a new life, a course towards a promised land. And on that course, he gave them 10 simple commandments. You probably know these, the 10 commandments, right? They're found in Exodus 20. And when God gives these commandments, he has two of them right off the bat that are pretty simple. He says have no other God before me, worship me first. And also don't make a carved image, don't make an idol. Well, by the time we get to chapter 32, so that's chapter 20, 12 chapters after that, we're in chapter 32, and this kind of all goes awry. At the beginning of uh, Exodus 32 in verse one, like the people are demanding, they're like, make us a God. They're actually saying the exact lines against the 10 commandments, make us a God. And Aaron, the leader at the time, because Moses is actually out of the picture right now. He's talking with God on a mountain. Moses is like, or Aaron, Aaron's down there and he's saying, okay, let's gather some gold and let's create a golden calf. And he says, this is now your God, let's worship this. So the people are off track. And this does not really resonate well with God, the father almighty who created heaven and earth and who created this people and gave them simple rules to follow. God looks at these people and he says, I've been clear. And Moses and God are having this conversation. There's a prayer moment happening that we're gonna sneak into. This text gives us a window into this prayer moment. It Happens in Exodus 32, verse seven. It says this, the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people and behold, they're stiff-necked. In other words, they're stubborn. Verse 10, now therefore, let me alone or leave me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Let's just pause here for a second. This is some harsh words. You might think, wow, God has a short temper. You'd be wrong. You gotta read before. We don't have the time for me to read you the first 30 chapters of Exodus here, but if you read before, you would realize a couple of things before we go on, we gotta address this. One is that God has been very patient with the people of Israel. This is not Israel's first uh, demarcation against their love for God. This is not Israel's first offense. God freed them from captivity. God has been patient with them in, their, in generation after generation as they have complained or as they have mistrusted God and not trusted God and walked away from the ways of God. He's been very, very patient. All the way back to Abraham in Genesis 12. Also, God has been very clear. So God's been patient and God has been clear. God, I told you, is 10 commandments in chapter 20, very clear. He's like, look, guys, I'm first and don't carve images. And in this moment god becomes second or third and then all of a sudden they like make this new image they make this carved image right so they've violated his patience his clarity but also god's been very just and god's been very merciful so god has held up his justice he's like this is my law this is what i've told you to do and he's also been very merciful For God to be both just and merciful is to picture what he's doing right now, which he's like, look, just let me alone right now. His pure justice would be they're all dead in an instant or (laughs) the nation would've been wiped out many, many years ago. That would've been pure justice. And pure mercy would be not saying anything like this, but God is both just and merciful. And so God interacts with prayer with justice and mercy. And he looks down and says, just leave me alone with these people. But look what Moses does. Okay, moving on in the story. 32, verse 11. Moses implored the Lord, his God. H- have you ever implored the Lord? H- have you ever absolutely like gone on your knees before God? Have you ever followed into God's presence and his space and just begged him for anything? This is where Moses is at. Implored the Lord, saying, Oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you've brought out of the lands of Egypt with your great power? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did they bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them on the face of the earth, right? He's He's asking God, why would you let the Egyptians win just to bring the people out and kill them? 13, remember Abraham, this is Moses saying, remember what you've done, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self to set, uh, and said to them, I will multiply their offsprings as stars in, of the heavens and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing his people. This is amazing. God relented. What does that mean? It's actually the same, this is crazy. It's the same Hebrew word for repented. You know what repenting is? It's changing your mind about the things that you believe. It's about changing your mind and changing your direction. You change your mind saying, I don't want to do this. I want to do this way. Repentance and relenting is often talked about human beings, right? Like we repent and relent from our sin and go towards the ways of God. But here that word is ascribed to the subject of Yahweh, the Lord, saying, God actually does this. Now, if this doesn't break your brain, then you're not listening, right? God changes his mind in this moment because Moses prays. Moses goes, God, I'm begging you. You swore by yourself. You You made a covenant with these people. And why would you make the Egyptians look good right now? And why would you, you know, eradicate these people who are actually your people, God, please God, do something. And then God does something. It's that simple. Moses asks God to do something and God changes his mind. It's that simple and it's that crazy. It brings this truth to mind. Through our prayers, God changes his mind and actions while never changing his character. See, this is what we wrestle with a lot. We think when God changes his mind or changes his actions, he changes. But actually, couldn't it be true that God can change his mind and actions, but also remain steadfast in his character? Yeah, you actually experience this all the time. Sometimes two different decisions are justified, and both decisions prove your character. Let me give you this example. Uh, Suppose this example I was reflecting on this is actually funny in this self-isolation time because many of you wish you could go meet your friend for lunch, okay? So let's imagine it together. (laughs) Let's all have this moment where we're imagining having lunch with a friend because doesn't that sound so nice right now? So let's say you go to lunch with your friend and you show up and you're on time. You said you'd meet at 12.30. You show up at 12.30 for this lunch and they're late. And you call and you call and they don't answer. Okay. And you've been there before, right? You're calling your friend. They're not answering. Where are they? You're like, okay, I'm leaving. Okay. And you have that moment where you're like, I'm getting up. I'm out. I've been here for 20 minutes and you get up and right when you get up, your phone rings and it's your friend. And they say, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm late. I know I'm already 20 minutes late. I'm going to be another 20 minutes late. <laughs> okay. That's, that's maybe you're thinking now I have to sit here and wait 40 minutes. Okay. You've already been waiting this amount of time. Listen, you as a, as your character, as a friend, you would be justified to make one of two decisions, right? That would make you a good friend. You're justified and a good friend to wait for your friend. You're also justified and a good friend to leave because you said 1230 and now it's gonna be 40 minutes. You're justified to leave. Both decisions reflect on your character positively. Why would it change your character to make one decision or another decision? The same see. This is the thing that's happening with God all the time. With God, constantly, his character is so pure that many of the decisions God could make would both reveal the integrity and the moral uprightness and righteousness of his character. And we just get a window into that in this moment. With God, it's constantly happening because whatever God does is good and he does different good things all the time. See, he just has more options than you and I have because he has more righteous character than you and I have. And in this moment, uh, we get this window into how prayer sometimes works, is that this, this passage is not about God changing, but about God changing what he does. In fact, God changing his mind actually reflects more on his merciful character than as if he were to woodenly commit to destroying his people. Him being open and merciful and flexible shows his great love for people. I wanna use this to encourage your prayers, is that your prayers have incredible, incredible power. Now you might think, Chris, this might, is this an isolated incident? Right? This is Moses, he's like this mighty leader, and this is God, and this is the book of Exodus. How is this true for me today? Well, actually, it happens all over the Bible. It happens all over the Bible. I'll just rattle off a couple of places. 2 Samuel 24, Jeremiah 18, Joel chapter 2, Amos chapter 7, Matthew 15, Luke 8, the book of Jonah, the story of Jonah in chapter 3, verse 10. That's all across the Bible. I just rattled off a couple of references you could go look up later to see how God changes his course and changes his actions based off of people's prayers. Look at this quote from Dallas Willard, the philosopher in The Divine Conspiracy. He says, God's quote-unquote response to our prayers, it's not a charade. It's not a charade. He does not pretend that he is answering our prayer when he is only doing what he's going to do anyway. Our requests really do make a difference in what God does or does not do. The idea that everything would happen exactly as it does regardless of whether we pray or not is a specter that haunts the minds of many who sincerely profess belief in God. It makes prayer psychologically impossible, replacing it with dead ritual at best. And of course, God does not respond to this. You wouldn't either. Yeah. God responds to our prayers because God is a person He's God, he's divine, he's holy, he's separated, he's above us, but he's a person. And when we start to think that our prayers don't do anything, it's very short after that we just stop praying. Because as Dallas Willard says, it becomes psychologically impossible. If you don't think prayer does anything, you won't pray. Or you'll only pray because it's religiously obligatory you know, obligatory for you to do it. This is the truth. Prayer can change reality. Do you believe this? This is the scripture I, I want you to see in this passage, is that reality changed when Moses asked God to do something. And in the moment we're in right now, could we as Christians actually shape and change reality? Is it possible that If my people, to use the verse we're using for our prayer campaign, if my people pray, he says, I will heal their land. That's in 2 Chronicles. That's That's the banner verse for this prayer campaign we're in right now. Do you believe that if you pray, God will act? Do you believe that if you pray, the reality you experience will actually change? That's what scripture teaches. During this pandemic, if the church is not praying, I really believe the church is wasting an opportunity. Because when we don't pray, we actually forget our role even as human beings. Like we actually just have a role to play. Sometimes we get caught up, and this is the beauty of the Old Testament in particular. New Testament does this as well, but I feel like the Old Testament does this so well it pulls out our perspective of the world being about us. The Old Testament is beautiful because God's grandeur is so preeminent and (laughs) people come and go all the time in the Old Testament. It's hilarious. You know, it's like generations come and generations go within a matter of one page of your Old Testament. Why? Because your Old Testament is not obsessed with human beings. It's obsessed with the glory, grandeur, mission, and purpose of God, the creator of the world. And he's on every page. And he's the main character in every story. And for us, we have to remember as the church right now, in the 21st century, our role, part of our role on this earth is to pray, is to ask God to do something, to ask him to intervene, to ask him to adjust the course of reality. That's part of what we're here to do. See, you and I, I always say this, right? you and I, we didn't choose the world that we're we're born in, okay? We don't get to make up the world that we're born in. We don't get to make up the reality. And God chose to make a world, not a ro- uh, a world of like robots where like kind of like everything functions. It's like a watch. You just kind of set it and it goes, right? That's a deistic view. That's not Christianity. God didn't set up a world of robots. He has a world that he set up that was good, that includes people. And God wanted cooperation. He wanted participation. He wanted partnership with human beings. That's where you and I step in is that our main role is not to be awesome human beings, living awesome lives, showing off our awesome selves. Our role is to become partners with God, is to become in relationship with him, to love him, to love neighbor and to do that through a life of prayer. Prayer is the means by which God accomplishes his will. Let me put it this way. Prayer is the way God has chosen to work in this world. All prayer is, very simply defined, I love Dallas Willard says this simply. He says, it's talking to God about what we're doing together. Talking to God about what we're doing together. It's that simple. What we're doing together is, is the partnership piece. The problem is we're just bad partners. And you see this in Exodus 32. If you look back at this story, right? The people, I told you, they, they were like, not wanting to be partners with the living God. They're like, hey, make us something else that's shiny. Make us something we can see, something we can touch, something we can experience in this kind of world we live in. Because we can't see God. and. We don't know if what he's up to is good and we don't know if we trust him. Yeah, we're not very good partners with God. We kind of get sidetracked from our life of partnership and prayer with him the same way the people of Israel were sidetracked. They wanted to worship something else. Same way you and I, we get distracted. We just want science to figure this out. We want uh, you know, the, the uh, government to handle this problem for us. We want our school systems to figure all this stuff out. And all of those things, God will work through those things. Those are beautiful and good things. Government is great. Science is amazing. But we can't forget that there's something else. There's another world happening that we can be in partnership with. And God invites us into that partnership. He saw this world, right? You see him experience it where he goes, just leave me alone. These are stubborn people. I don't even want to deal with these people right now. That's his attitude in, in this passage. But did you know God always had in his mission to partner with people in a more deeper way? In this moment in the biblical story, he's partnering with them with, through a nation and partnering with them through representatives like Moses and partnering with them through a law. He gave them a law, a rule to live by. He says, live by this way. That's how you'll partner with me and worship me. Well, he was forecasting from here and furthermore that there was going to be a time when he partnered with us in a more personal level. The book of Ezekiel says this. God speaks through this prophet and he says, I will put my spirit, my very essence in you and I will cause you to obey. Yeah, this is all through Ezekiel, through Isaiah. The prophets were speaking of this moment. God makes faithful partners through his spirit. And you and I can become faithful partners when we call out to Jesus and we become full of the Holy Spirit. Because Moses was full of this Holy Spirit and Ezekiel was full of this Holy Spirit. And Jesus himself, look at Luke four fourteen. It says, Jesus returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee. Jesus himself was full of the Spirit. You see, friends, our theology of Jesus and our theology of like this story, Exodus 32, Moses, we tend to think that Jesus and Moses are exceptions. They were full of the Holy Spirit. They were partners with God. They were connected to God. God heard their prayers. We think those are exceptions. But what if it was the rule? What, what if Moses and Jesus and Ezekiel, were, they were not exceptions, but they were actually the rule by which God wants to work? What if instead of these characters being kind of unique examples, the way we sometimes view this, they were instead actually the representation of what kind of partner God is looking for on the earth? If you don't believe me, actually, that's what Jesus said when he left the earth. When Jesus rose from the dead before he ascended into heaven in Acts chapter one, he says very simply, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. He's like, when I, when I leave, don't be afraid because I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul can say in Romans eight eleven, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to you through his spirit. Yeah. See, a life of prayer and a life of partnership to God, it's not something that some Christians do. And it's not something that super spiritual Christians do. It's just something that Christians do. And let me kind of put this actually a layer deeper. Prayer and partnership with God to change reality It's not just something religious people do. And I don't know where you're at today. I really believe it's something human beings were designed to do. Human beings as created beings were not created to be self-sustaining entrepreneurs. They weren't created to be self-sufficient. Human beings were created to partner with God to orchestrate and shape the world that both of them live in. That's huge difference to how some people are viewing this season, right? During this virus, I'm seeing so much anxiety, so much fatalism, so much what does it matter that Christians actually have the opportunity to be the ones who are the powerful ones, not because of anything they have, but because of someone they know, a spirit that lives in them, a spirit that inhabits them. Romans, that verse I just read, if the spirit that raised Jesus dwells in you, then you will get life into your immortal body. Man, if we have the same spirit that rose Jesus, the implications are incredible. It's really funny, you know, when you study church history, um, there's so much about church history that shows you when the church is like sequestered and when it is isolated and when it is oppressed, it seems to accomplish more. It's really weird. It's like you studied churches in politically oppressed areas or even during times of incredible suffering, like we're in right now, it's weird, but during those moments and in those places, God's church tends to flower. Now you think, why? Well, it's connected to what I'm talking about. It's connected to when, people, when all people can do is pray, they actually have way more power than you might ever expect. Like Because all we can do is pray, when we do pray, we realize we're doing more than we could ever imagine. I was reminded of this this last week. I read this article by this pastor, Phil Moore. He's the pastor of this church called Everyday Church in London. And he brought back to mind, I'd never heard this story before, but he kind of read it years ago. The story of this missionary in the early 20th century. His name was James Fraser, And he was actually um, in kind of a similar position as the church is right now, but he was a missionary in China to pagan villagers in a village in China that's about several hundred miles west of Wuhan, where this virus actually broke out um, recently, but this is back in the early 1900s. He's in the foothills of the Himalayas, pr- one of the most vast mountain ranges um, we know of, right? And James Fraser, this missionary, he found himself unable to reach converts because of the mountainous terrain. There was like so much snow that would happen, the winter was too dangerous for him to go. In fact, he realized that every winter in order to host a Sunday service in this village where all these you know, um, Chinese pagan villagers were, the only way he could get there was by hiking two days into the village, spending an entire day doing Sunday gatherings, then spending two days hiking back. In other words, it took him five days just to host a Sunday service and he realized I can't do this. I, I, I can't, I, I can't aff- be afforded the risk to his health. He's like, I, I, I can't gather with the people. Does this sound familiar, right? <laughs> We're kind of in that moment right now. This is why Fillmore brought it up. Um, but as he prayed, James Frazier is praying in the foothills of the Himalayas, thinking about going over the mountains, it taking five days. He realized, wait a second, God is in this problem. He's like, God is not a part of this, like away from this problem. He's actually invested in this problem. And the only way I could work, he's thinking, Frazier's thinking, the only way I can work as a missionary right now is not to hike, it's to pray. He's like, I'm just gonna do this experiment. So he conducts this experiment where one winter he decides to not hike. And he decides to just pray for the people in the villages, in the mountains. What would happen if instead of spending the time doing all the things I would do, I would just pray? He prayed for three to five days every week that the highland villages would know God and experience his presence instead of visiting them. It seems backwards, it seems crazy. And when the spring sun melted the snow and it was easier to hike in and it only took about a day or a half a day to hike in, he climbed those mountains to discover what had happened. The church had flourished. The church even multiplied. <laughs> he didn't do anything but pray. Like we as Westerners sometimes look at that, we go, man, that's a waste of time. But the church flourishes. In fact, Fillmore writes this. He says, in fact, as he met with them, he heard about their winter Bible reading and their isolated prayer times, and he came to the remarkable conclusion that the villagers in the highlands had grown far more during the winter than the ones he was ministering to in the lowlands during the winter. The ones he was leading Bible studies for and he was doing the gatherings for, these villagers who were all alone and isolated and sequestered, more happened. Man, that's a story from history that should re- we should reflect upon right now. He wrote in his journal, Fraser wrote in his journal, I am no longer nervous or anxious anymore. It all began because of God. It will all continue because of God. What's even crazier is a lot of scholars believe that the big movement of China in the 20th century, God's church has done multiplied tons in China. Many scholars believe that the start of the movement was actually in those villages that Fraser was praying for does this expand your vision of what prayer is? I really hope it does. Because at some level, we right now as the church need to reckon with the reality of what prayer can do. And I think pastorally, there's been grief in me that we haven't been able to meet. There's grief in me that we haven't been able to gather on a Sunday. It's weird not seeing you guys every week. It's weird being in the foothills of the Himalayas, knowing you guys are somewhere doing whatever it is you're doing. But when I read this story, and when I see what God did and how God changed his mind in Exodus 32, and when I see how God responds to my prayers, and when I really consider it, you know what I think? I think we are set up for one of the more powerful times in the church in America. We're set up to grow in our resiliency and our commitment to being partners with God. I can't pray for you as your pastor, right? We're far from each other. You're going to have to learn to pray. And there's just this moment that comes in every like sermon, but this one in particular, where what I'm telling you just falls short and you've got to just pick it up and take it into obedience. Like, I can't force you to pray, but I can show you through scripture and through the witness of amazing Christians like James Frazier in the foothills of the Himalayas, that prayer can change reality. But you now, you gotta go into prayer. And let me give you two final enormous implications for us to sit with. The first is that you have to be certain God will answer our prayer. All of our prayers, God will answer. We just have to remember prayer is truly a request. If the Holy Spirit is within us and empowering us and we are partnering with God, we will know, we ask, and this is a New Testament analogy, we ask God the way that a kid asks a father. And God is waiting to be generous to his kids. But God is also viewing these prayers as what they truly are, which is requests. God has given himself discretionary power to say yes, to say no, or to say wait. All of those are answers. So I've put it this way before. All prayers are answered, but not all requests are granted. You kind of got to remember that. Like we say sometimes, I prayed and God didn't answer me. Well, it's usually just maybe God didn't answer you in the way you wanted him to answer you. The book of Jonah is actually about that a lot. All of God's, all of our prayers to God are always answered. It's just that the requests we give are not always granted and we have to trust him with that. This is how exactly, by the way, how a good father acts. Ultimately, the good father is always going to act out of the best for the child. And the child has to learn the trusting relationship. That's why Jesus tells us to pray, our father who are in heaven, our father, we approach our father. There's a way in which, you know, all your requests, if you ask God, there's a, there's a way in which all of the requests you've ever asked, if they are granted to you, there's a way that you actually become a jerk out of that, right? <laughs> there's a way that you become filled with pride when everything you pray is answered. See, God, God's more interested in the things in our hearts and our character, how to develop us as people of faith and resilience and integrity. And we wouldn't have those things if God just did everything we said, right? Also, he wouldn't really be God, would he? If he's God, he truly would have the discretionary power to say yes, no, or wait. If he's not God, he becomes our puppet. He does whatever he says. So when I say God answers your prayers, I'm telling you, he answers them. He gives real, thoughtful, discretionary answers. Some of them are different than the requests. Some of them are no, and some of them are wait. The second enormous implication Not only God will answer our prayers, God will show us the possibilities. Um, This is where I'm saying it's up to you to begin praying. Um, When I started to take this seriously, when I started to pray, I started to change my view of God and change my view of reality and what was possible. It started with really weird things. I started praying more for like specific provisions I needed in my life. There've been times I've been um, you know, up against the wall financially. There's been times where I've been really struggling with a relationship. There's been times in my ministry where I needed, I needed so much help to just keep going because it was so hard. And I asked God for certain things and they happened. <laughs> and the possibility of prayer began to blow my mind and I just started praying for everything. You know, my wife and I, every time we move and we're looking for a place, we pray specifically for what we need. We say, God, we, you know, in the Bay Area, especially, man, God, we need this price point. We need this location. God, if it's your will, we just, we need this kind of house. Help, help us provide. I can't tell you how many times God has answered our prayers with specificity. Now, I'm not saying it happens all the time. I'm just saying we won't know unless we pray. We won't know the possibilities unless you pray. This amazing scholar, Rowan Williams, he's this brilliant mind, okay? He's once led the entire Anglican church, which is the whole church of England. Very smart guy, crazy wise. When he was asked about this kind of subject about why why should you pray? This is how simply he put it, this brilliant man. He says this, when I pray, stuff happens. When I don't pray, stuff doesn't happen. (laughs) It's like that simple. He's like, this is all I know. All I know is that when I pray, I just see things happen. And when I don't pray, I just don't see those things happen. It's like that simple. And, and, and I want you to be sure that Rowan Williams is, is right. Because you might be thinking, how can I be sure that stuff's gonna happen? Well, we need not look any farther than the gospel, right? Jesus Christ, when he was dying, made a prayer. And it's a famous prayer. He was in the garden of Gethsemane. The night before he was betrayed. He was with his disciples and even his disciples couldn't hang with him. They couldn't pray. They were falling asleep. And it says in the gospel of Matthew that he, he went a little far off. and He went alone and he fell on his face and he prayed this prayer. My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus prayed that the cup, his suffering on the cross would pass from him. And then he prayed that God's will would be done. And, God, and Jesus put those two prayers, those actual requests before God. And kind of the famous question is like, was Jesus's prayer answered? The answer is, of course it was because Jesus prayed a prayer that was knit to the heart of God. He let his request be made known if the cup could pass, but he also legitimately desired God's will to be done. And we know the cup of Jesus' suffering did not pass from Jesus. In fact, Jesus drank the cup of suffering by going to the cross and dying for our sins. But we also know that this was God's will. Why do we know this? Because all of scripture testifies to this reality, that in the cross, the answer of Jesus's prayer is being operated. In the dying body of Jesus, the resurrection life is about to be pumped into his veins. He is to rise again. That actually, by the will of God being to drink the suffering, Mysterious and strangely, it led to the benefit, blessing, and salvation of all people. In other words, the cup not passing from Jesus meant the cup could pass from you and me. Meaning, now that Jesus has experienced his life and his way and his suffering, he has now given to us the gospel of salvation. How do we know our prayers are going to be answered? Man, we know because when our prayers are, when we give our prayers, God will answer us in the way that he answered Jesus. And the request might not be met, but it will be led to our salvation, our peace, and our life in God. Whenever we pray, even if we suffer more, even if God is not responding at the pace we want him to respond with this virus and this suffering going on, we know this. Our, God is connected and dedicated to our good. And even if that means we perish. This is the crazy reality of the New Testament. Even if we perish, we know it's not the end of the story because Jesus experienced this. The cup didn't pass and yet it led to salvation. And so when you pray, go back to week one with the Lord's Prayer and pray what Jesus tells you to pray. Your will be done. Your kingdom come make these your prayers. Make these the prayers that are your legitimate requests before God and pray with wild abandon. Pray with every request you got because I think sometimes people say, why should I pray? I often say, why not? Like, what are you waiting for? Why not pray? Why not step into partnership with God? It's why Paul could write this in the end of Philippians when he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand, so don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. The promise is this. Paul says it very simply let your requests be made known to God, all of them. And as they are made known, and as you trust him to answer them the way he will answer, the peace of Christ will flood your life. So your request, it still might be up in prayer. It still may be unanswered. But the peace of Christ is with you because you will know the same thing Christ knew when he was in the garden that this life is not up to us to orchestrate, but it's up to us to partner with God in what may happen. Be encouraged in your prayer life. As you go to your groups right now, this is a complicated subject, I get it. It's nuanced, it's deeply theological. You know what I really want you to do in your groups more than anything tonight? (laughs) It might be obvious, but to pray. I think For as much as I've talked about prayer in my life, man, I've definitely prayed more than talked about praying. So could you today, tonight in your groups, simply spend a little time discussing this, sure. But would you spend more time actually praying, actually letting your requests be made known to God? Because I think that might be a better use of your time. And I think right there, you'll receive more peace than talking about prayer if you just simply pray. So let me ask God to bless our time before we go. God, prayer is a beautiful gift. You've given us to partner with you. We wanna steward it well. We need your help to do these things. We don't have the answers, but we trust you and we put our faith in you, God, the good father. So for those that are going to discuss and go to prayer right now, God, would you bless their prayer time richly, giving them the peace of Christ as they seek your face. In Jesus' name, amen. Grace and peace to you guys. We love you and we'll see you on Sunday.